Hi, welcome to another episode of the Carolyn Glick Middle East News Hour. I think um, that probably everybody watching this already has seen the footage, the horrific footage from the town of Bucha in Ukraine, where Ukrainian forces were able to seize back control over the town. I think it's in the outskirts of Kiev from the Russian invasion forces. And, uh, and yesterday, a camera crew from Israel uh, television entered the village and they brought in footage of what appears to be a mass grave where hundreds of villagers were thrown into a mass grave. Um, and it, it was really quite horrific. Uh, President Biden re responded to the footage saying that uh, Vladimir Putin uh, is a war crime or war criminal and that he needs to be tried for his crimes. And, um, you know, the real question is, um, what is Putin doing if this, in fact, is what it looks like, that is uh, the site of a mass massacre, of a, a mass slaughter or killing fields inside of Ukraine? We saw other footage uh, uh, that came out earlier of uh, the bodies of men outside of their homes uh, with their hands tied behind by, behind their back dead. Um, and also uh, the scene of, of towns that were retaken by Ukrainian forces from Russia. Um, so there's, there's, there seems to be a lot of atrocities going on there. The question is, what does Putin want? What is his strategic plan? We know that the shock and awe at the initial invasion did not uh, cause Ukraine to collapse. Uh, they have inspired people around the world with their with their defiance and their and their courageous fighting uh, for for their country. Um, and uh, on the other hand, we are we have Russia has been on its highest nuclear alert for I think a month, and uh, there were uh, Russian uh, nuclear uh, bombers that uh, penetrated S Swedish airspace. Uh, last week, uh, armed with nuclear missiles. So, you know, there's a lot of stuff going on now, and uh, not only from the devastation on the ground, but also not quite clear what the United States is planning to do, what what the plan is, what the goals are, and it's also not clear what Putin wants and how he can be mollified, and what the chances of our of this war on the ground in Ukraine expanding turning into some other kind of war, a nuclear war perhaps. Um, and I can't think of anybody better to talk about this with. And obviously what all of this means for Israel, what all of it means for the Middle East, we'll bring it back home at the end. And the person that I, I think is most important to talk about this with today is my very good friend, uh, David Goldman from the Asia Times. Uh, he's, David is a banker and a musicologist and an all round and a classicist and an all round uh, Renaissance man, Renaissance man. Uh, he's written some very important work about the war in Iran, in Iran, in uh, in Russia and Ukraine, at the Asia Times over the past week. One about what Putin is up to, and the other one is about uh, the specter of nuclear war over this uh, limited right now uh, war, which is happening all in Ukraine. Um, so, without further ado, uh, welcome David to the to the podcast. Great to have you back. Well, thank you, Carolyn. It's wonderful to be here and, and wonderful to hear you say nice things about me. If I have a chance, I'll say nice things about you, too. I'm, I'll, I'll give you that opportunity. Don't worry. During the course of this news hour, you're going to have an opportunity to flatter me. But in the meantime, <laughs> I, let's suffice with my flattering of you 
And let's talk a little bit about what what's going on on the ground. Uh, well, you saw the footage in Bucha. Uh, you look at this and you analyze it, you know, in, in terms of what what Putin is thinking. Um, can you give me some insight uh, to start up to start the ball oh, rolling? It, well, this is obviously a horrifying situation. Uh, I would like to see all the facts come out and I'd like to see those responsible uh, held responsible for it. But I think it's important to step back and look at the big picture, which is nuclear war is the subject of all these events in the mind of Vladimir Putin. The day before he sent the Russian army into Ukraine, he gave his 10,000 10, word speech in which he said, NATO is trying to encircle Russia. It's putting missiles on Russia's border, which it claims are defensive, but in fact could be used just as easily to uh, fire uh, nuclear weapons at Russia from a very close distance. <coughs> Russia has what Angela Cotavilla called a viable air defense against nuclear missiles. It has 300 of its cities protected by the S-400 and S-500 system in an interlocking layer defense. Uh, it's something like the Israeli three-level defense, but it involves, of course, a much, much larger geographical area. Uh, Russia also has submarine-launched hyper-velocity uh, glide vehicles. That means that a, a Russian sub lurking underwater 100 miles from Washington could hit Washington with a nuclear weapon in exactly 55 seconds before you know, any possible warning. So they have better offensive and defensive capabilities. And what Putin's are the American defensive capabilities for nuclear <clears throat> weapons? And why don't well, we just we to have, fill out the uh, picture? We, we have that, we have um, Patriot, but it's much thinner and, uh, and probably not nearly as efficient technologically. For one thing, the Russians have for years put small nuclear weapons on their anti-missile missiles. So if a nuclear missile is coming at Russia, they'll send up an anti-missile missile and set off a nuclear blast in the air. So it doesn't have to be that accurate. It can blow up an incoming missile from miles away. Uh, and I think that's generally agreed that the Russian air defense is, uh, is pretty good and a lot better than ours. Now, from Russia's standpoint, the way Putin views this, uh, if you can put a short-range missile 300 miles from Moscow on the Ukrainian-Russian border, you can sneak a, a, a tactical missile underneath that umbrella of Russian air defenses. It's a way to try to circumvent Russia's air defenses. And that's his perception, at least his stated perception. It could be, of course, that he's making this up out of whole cloth. But what he's saying about the missiles we have in Poland or Romania already is quite true. In other words, the anti-ballistic missile systems we have, the defensive systems, the same hardware can be used to fire offensive nuclear weapons. You just have to screw on a new warhead and aim them a bit lower. So you know, the, the thing that I find very hard to get my head around um, when, when we talk about how Putin perceives the prospect of nuclear war is that when you look at the Americans, you get the sense 
whether it's Biden and his spokespeople or the, the or it's Tony Blinken or uh, or anybody in the Pentagon, you, you get a sense that they're just fundamentally not serious, that they don't seem to fully understand the gravity of what's happening or of how uh, Putin sees his own options and that using nuclear weapons is is very much one that he takes into consideration. You have a sense that there's one guy uh, playing for keeps and the other guys are just posturing and virtue signaling. They're they're kids playing near gasoline with matches and they frighten me. The Wall Street Journal reported yesterday, uh, Michael Gordon in a very long piece that two days before Putin sent the army in, uh, Olaf Scholz, the chancellor of Germany, went to Zelensky and said, we've got a deal. You just, you say you're not gonna join NATO. So no, no NATO missiles in Ukraine by implication. You say you're not gonna join NATO and Biden and Putin will both guarantee Ukraine's sovereignty. And Zelensky blew him off. Zelensky said, no, the majority of Ukrainians, the Wall Street Journal said, Majority of Ukrainians want to join NATO, so I'm going to keep the option open. This, uh, everyone talks about as the hero president of Ukraine, this was the extreme of irresponsibility because for the past 20 years, every expert from Henry Kissinger to William Burns, the current head of the CIA, to Joe Biden himself, have warned that Ukraine's membership in NATO was a tripwire for Putin, and that's because of the geometry of nuclear war fighting. So nuclear war is the subject of this, and we're talking about a proxy skirmish on um, uh, Russia's border. Russia's, Putin's objection to Ukraine uh, joining NATO is identical in a sense to Israel's objection to Hamas controlling the West Bank. It becomes a missile, missile platform. That's really the same as America's objection to Cuba having nuclear missiles in 1962. That changes the geometry of warfare. So whether Putin's paranoid or not, and whether the United States really wants to put offensive weapons into uh, Ukraine. I didn't, see the, I, I didn't see the Gordon piece, just to back up for a second. Um, so Zelensky blew off Schultz and said, no, uh, the Ukrainian people want to be in NATO. Well, there should have been another person in that conversation, right? I mean, there should have been a person named Joe Biden in that conversation saying to Zelensky, look, you know, uh, this is a deal that's going to avoid your country being l- laid waste and you should really take it because you're never going to get into NATO anyway. Oh, my, my colleague at Asia Times, Steve Bryan. But wait, but before you tell me yeah, about Steve, right. just to answer me one question. Did the Gordon article say anything about that? Did Biden have any role in this exchange? No, or it was just- no that's, that's the big mystery. Now, Steve Bryan has reported that the United States and Britain both discouraged Zelensky from giving up on the NATO pledge uh, precisely because they wanted the option of Ukraine going into NATO. So there is some you know, reporting to the effect, including prominently in Asia Times, <coughs> that the United States pushed Zelensky in this direction. I don't have a smoking gun, I wasn't in the room, but I can't imagine that 
if the if the United States had given Zelensky very firm advice, we want to freeze this thing out. We're going to listen to Henry Kissinger. We're not going to cross the NATO tripwire. You're not going into NATO. So let's make this thing go away. I have no doubt that this tragedy could have been avoided. That's terrible. And so what you're saying essentially is that the the people who were supposed to be sober-minded and interested in preventing a war uh, launched by a by by a nuclear armed uh, a power that the United States doesn't want to go to war against, um, that they were not acting like responsible adults. They were not looking at this and seeing the danger. They well, a- a- absolutely. And Carolyn, I think they've made it worse. When Joe Biden says Vladimir Putin is a war criminal and we want to bring him to trial, that's saying there's going to be no possible compromise. If you say my opponent's a scoundrel and an evildoer and a terrible person, and we want the following terms to our advantage, uh, that's one thing. But if you say the man's a war criminal, he's Hitler, we've got to get rid of him. We want regime change, as Biden said, and then took back. But to say the man's a war criminal is to say we'll settle for nothing less than regime change. You don't go around playing regime change games with guys who've got more nuclear weapons than you do. And who seem to think that it's a viable option to use them. Well, there is a question. (coughs) There there are many people who said at the beginning of this thing, Putin's gonna be overthrown. Uh, 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 Biden said, we've reduced the ruble to rubble. I don't know who came out with that cute phrase. Uh, We're going to crush the Russian economy. Uh, You heard this all over Washington. Uh, No such thing has happened, and I don't believe it will happen. Surprisingly, Russia's economy is only taking a very modest hit, and the ruble, which was supposed to be rubble, uh, has regained all the ground that it lost in the initial days of the war and is trading against the dollar exactly where it was before, Russia's trade surplus has grown enormously because they're still selling almost as much oil and gas as they did before and at higher prices, and they've cut their imports. Uh, The imports they've cut are luxury goods they could do without. It's not really possible to stop them from buying the kind of computer chips they use. They're not the top of the line sophisticated ones, and there are plenty of ways to get them. Sanctions are full of holes. Uh, Most importantly, in all of this, in my view, is India. India is a swing factor in the world. World's largest population, by the middle of the century, by many projections, it will have an economy larger than the United States, second only to China, an enormous power, and India decided to side with Russia. The United States can't sanction India because the United States thinks it needs India to line up against China. Uh, and it's India, right. Uh, I mean, it, it, it's absolutely right. If it if it wants to face off against China without India, it's going to have a very hard time. China's immediate response was to send its foreign minister to India and see if it couldn't work out an improvement in Indian-Chinese relations. That will be interesting to watch. It's early days, of course. So do, why I'm very, uh, I was actually, I was pretty surprised by how Modi is playing this. How How do you, how do you explain his decision to to side with Russia. Russia has been an ally of India since it was founded. 
if you parachute into any Indian city and ask any passerby, what country is our best friend? The answer will be Russia. There's a very long history there. India gets most of its weapons from Russia. India has never trusted the United States, which has done a great deal to make trouble for it by arming Pakistan, which flies F-16s. Uh, what, are the, what do the Indians fly? They fly MiGs? They fly MiGs and they fly Rafales. They fly the French uh, fighter, but mainly MiGs. So they've always flown MiGs. So the Pakistan manufactures F-16s under license from the United States and America trains its pilots. So it's not as if the United States has been an unambiguous friend of India. We Americans. But I mean, you can't blame it really on the United States. I mean, under Nehru, India was uh, very aligned with the Soviet Union during during. The- I, I'm not defending. I'm not defending Nehru. I'm simply saying that we Americans think that uh, with our short attention span, we can come up with a great deal and go sell somebody and forget about the fact that there are decades of history. So Modi is going to pursue an independent course for India. He trusts nobody. He doesn't trust the Russians, but he certainly doesn't trust the West, and he's not going to be ordered around. And he knows that they can't sanction him. So India has set up a local currency swamp arrangement bypassing the dollar monetary system to exchange goods with Russia, rubles for rupees directly. And Indian consumer goods industries are gearing up to export massively to Russia to replace Western goods. They won't, you know, you won't get a Gucci handbag, but you know, lower end consumer goods, the Indians can do that kind of thing. So the, the point of this is that Russia's economy does not look like it's going to collapse. What Western analysts consider to be reasonably independent polls put Putin's popularity at 78% this week, oh. as opposed to 59% before the war. I can't attest to the independence, but the sources that Asia Times has inside of Russia say that, yes, there has been a patriotic surge of popularity and a typically Russian paranoid reaction, us against them. The world is putting sanctions on us. We're being treated unfairly, so rallying around the president. So what about all of those stories uh, in the early weeks of the war with uh, uh, a news editor getting up in front of the camera with uh, say no to war or whatever the anti-war slogan it was, and you had a whole bunch of other uh, prominent people in Russia who were distancing themselves or from Putin or renouncing the war, denouncing the war. Um, where's that? Sure. What's happened is you've wiped out the liberal pro-Western wing of Russian politics. People like Antonin Chubai, who was one of Putin's advisors, fled the country, went to Turkey. A lot of other people have quit. And what you have is the hardline nationalists uh, rallying around Putin. It will be very difficult to dislodge him because from the standpoint of, well, let's say people like Alexander Dugin, this Russian neo-fascist Eurasian theorist, right. uh, they're all cheerleading Putin. They have to under the circumstances. So the real question, Carolyn, in my view, is on whose side is time? Time is the critical variable here. What we've heard from all the Western press is the Russians are getting kicked around. They did a terrible job. The Ukrainians are beating them. They're losing. Time is not on Putin's side. What if the opposite 
is true. From Russia's standpoint, I think what Russia hoped to get from the invasion was an immediate turnaround by Zelensky uh, and a deal on uh, Russia's terms, which would have been Ukrainian neutrality and de facto or de jure Russian control of Donetsk and Luhansk, the uh, southeastern provinces with majority Russian-speaking population. Um, he didn't get that. So option B is to reduce Ukraine to a depopulated pile of rubble, which will be incapable of being a threat to Russia for a very long time to come, if ever. And what I see Russia doing is systematically reducing Ukrainian cities to uninhabitable hulks, forcing the people out. I hope they're not killing people en masse, but they're certainly driving millions of people from their homes intentionally. And for that, all you need is long range artillery, maybe a few uh, air to surface missiles. You don't need tanks and all the Javelin anti-tank missiles we send Ukraine are pretty useless. And if that's Putin's strategy, and I believe it is, um, time is on Putin's side because in a few weeks, there won't be much left of a habitable Ukraine outside the Russian controlled areas in the Southeast. And that's quite horrible, but it's hardly novel in war. It's been done lots of times. Yeah, you you talk about Pomerania in your in your article and what happened. Oh no, yeah. Germany. Uh, the, the French won the Thirty Years' War. Thirty Years' War is my favorite war because it's the nastiest, most destructive, and uh, also the most surprising. Because France, with half the population of the Austrian Spanish Habsburg Empire and much less money. Uh, nonetheless beat them. It beat them plus Germany and emerged as the dominant power in Europe until 1870. Uh, two, more than two centuries of Spanish, uh, sorry, French dominance in Europe uh, came out of that. And the evil genius who guided France that victory, Cardinal Richelieu did this by intentionally laying waste to and depopulating large areas of, uh, of Germany and elsewhere in Central Europe. So the children's rhyme, ladybird, ladybird, fly away home, your house is on fire, your children are gone, uh, comes from a German rhyme about the destruction of Pomerania, which lost two thirds of its population and was reduced to cannibalism. And a point that's made uh, brilliantly by Aldous Huxley, who wrote the definitive book about Richelieu and his chief of intelligence, The Gray Evidence, is that Everything they did was intended to draw out the war and keep the destruction going as long as possible, not merely to defeat their enemies in the battlefield, but to wipe out the countries they came from. And you pointed out in your article that half of the population of Ukraine has left the country in recent years for you know, economic migration, among other things, and that Ukraine has one of the lowest birth rates uh, in Europe, I believe. Well, yes. yeah, and, yeah. and, and you know, we look at it, I mean, here in Israel, there have been all of these articles about Ukrainian um, um, uh, uh, women who, you know, hire out their, their uterus, you know, uh, surrogacy. It's a big industry in Ukraine. And you have 
apparently a significant amount, a number of Ukrainian women today in Ukraine who are pregnant, uh, carrying the children of Israeli couples. Um, so it, it's very odd that this country that has such a low birth rate, rather than produce or reproduce itself, is reproducing other nations for those nations who have fertility issues. So that's remarkable. I, I didn't know that. I didn't know that. Well, Eastern Europe is uh, demographically tragic. It's a race to the bottom. Uh, those countries uh, have some of the lowest birth rates in the world. Ukraine is close to the bottom of the pile. And as you mentioned, on paper, uh, it has a population of 45 million pre-war, but according to their own demographics institute, 12 million people had left. That's half the working age adult population. So 34 million, 12 million who were in the adult working population by and large. Left, already left. Now you so that means another, that they were down to 22 million at the start no, of the no, war? They were, they were at supposedly at 44 million uh, or 45 million. They were supposedly at 45 million and what were actually at 33 million I see. before the war. Now another five to 10 million have left. So you're going to have the Ukrainian population that's left uh, in the low 20s, roughly half uh, of what it was. And most of women of childbearing age will have left, a lot of able-bodied men will have left. Of course, a few have come back to fight in the army, but uh, the reflow is not that big. They'll find cities that are utterly ruined and there simply may not be the people to reconstruct. So Putin, I think, is pursuing what you might call a Rishalovian policy of scorched earth, driving out the population, ruining the infrastructure, and I've seen chatter on some of the pro-Putin social media channels, for example, in Alexander Dugin's channel, saying, what a fantastic opportunity to deindustrialize Ukraine permanently. That's the time to really you know, wipe them out as a modern country. So as we push Putin into a corner, as we declare that our objective is to put him on trial for war crimes, he has all the more motive to lay waste to Ukraine, uh, neutralize it as a possible threat to Russia or as a possible NATO member, and also let it serve as a horrible warning to its neighbors not to mess with Russia. How do you see, I know that uh, you know Viktor Orban, who was just reelected uh, by a large majority of Hungarians to be the uh, Prime Minister, I think, uh, of, of Hungary for another term. Um, so he has distinguished himself from the Baltic Republics and from Poland in choosing to be neutral in this war. He's taken in a lot of Ukrainian refugees, but he's not allowing NATO to transfer weapons well, to yes, Ukraine he's not exactly Hungary. Neutral. He, he joined the sanctions, so he's on the NATO side, but he didn't want to become an active participant. So he drew a line. Uh, I think neutral is the wrong word. He's simply not uh, willing to be active. Uh, Viktor Orban is one of the smartest people I've ever met. He's a very brilliant man. Uh, he's done uh, an extremely able job of managing an extremely difficult country to manage. 
And it's true, he puts his thumbs on the scales, he patronizes state media that support him, and the state contracts go to his friends and so forth. It's not a perfect system. It's a bit like Mayor Daley's Chicago, your hometown. Yeah. Uh, a lot different now than it was when it was a city that worked. Now it's a city right, that's just another. It worked, it worked in Mayor Daley was far from perfect, but it worked under Mayor Daley. Uh, Orban's much more like Mayor Daley than he is like uh, Putin. Uh, the idea that he's some kind of Putinite is completely wrong. As his model, he told me, is Helmut Kohl, old-fashioned Christian democracy. The answer is very simple. Orban is smart. He knows that Putin is likely to survive this and survive this uh, quite well. And he's not going to start a fight with Putin that he can't win uh, or you know, put Hungary at risk to satisfy the, uh, fat the political fantasies. And I think it comes down to that of Washington. So he, he did join the sanctions. Uh, and he did take in refugees, but he drew the line at weapons shipments. He's basically signaling to Moscow, we're not going to get involved with a fight with you. E even though we disapprove of what you do, we condemn it. We're not going to get into a fight. I respect that because there are only three ways this could happen. One, uh, this could end. One is we actually have a war, in which case uh, uh, the horrors of it will surpass anything we can think of. The second is we have a political settlement where we cut a deal of some kind. And the third is that we have permanent war like North and South Korea with a DMZ cutting through Ukraine and the world dividing into blocks. That's not gonna be good for us, uh, that, that last solution, the world dividing into blocks. Because remember two thirds of the world's population voted with Putin or abstained at the United Nations. I mean, I think that that's a key point because there's this, um, I mean, it, it is an echo chamber in the West where everybody is appalled by what Putin's doing. I, I would assume that everybody is appalled everywhere by what Putin is doing. Nobody would want to visit, have this sort of thing visited on their own country. And people probably feel very badly for the fact that it's happening in Ukraine by and large. But as well Right. But the vast majority of the world's population won't even go as far as to say this is condemnatory behavior and this shouldn't stand and that what Putin's doing is wrong. Um, the vast majority of the people on planet Earth won't even go that far. Um, and, and for a good reason, they don't want to get into a fight with Putin. And I think here is a key question, which is, is there a winning strategy um, for the United States here? Because it doesn't feel like the United States is thinking strategically about this. There, no. I get the sense that this is all about virtue signaling, and we can get into that a little bit more later. But I, I get the feeling that you know, in general, uh, in this sort of, I, I mean, chaotic mess of U.S. foreign policy since the Biden administration came into office, um, you don't have really anybody thinking about what American interest is served by what we're doing. You see no, people thinking about political thing. promises that they made to the far left base of the Democrat Party to assuage anger at 
at you know at uh, Biden getting the nomination instead of Bernie Sanders, and and the foreign policy team is comprised of people who wish that Bernie Sanders was the president, and um, they're carrying out a Bernie Sanders foreign policy. I mean that that's how it feels to me. It doesn't feel to me like anybody thought through a strategy for Afghanistan or or how America's national interest was served by serving up this country in humiliation to the Taliban. The same, obviously, with their Iran strategy. I'm writing an article now about their Palestinian thing. It's not a strategy in any of these things. It's all just political payback to the radical base of the Democrat Party. That, and to some extent, with people like uh, Anthony Blinken and Victoria Nuland, the undersecretary of uh, state who uh, East Europe specialist, uh, probably the author of the Maidan coup of uh, uh, 2014. Uh, it's a idealistic, fantastic belief that they can complete the spread of democracy to Russia by deposing Putin. Now, I, I think you've cut to the chase, Carl. It's exactly right. As to go back to the nuclear war issue, which Putin stated was the issue on February 23rd before he invaded. The real scandal in my view and the origin of the crisis is that with an economy a 10th the size of the United States, Russia has managed to leapfrog the United States in nuclear war fighting technology, both offense and defense. How this happened should be the subject of scandal and wailing and gnashing of teeth in Washington, but it's not even being discussed. If you want to deal with characters like Putin who are volatile and dangerous and nasty, you have to be stronger than they are. That's how Reagan did it. That's why the Russians backed down from Reagan because they knew Russia couldn't keep up with our strategic defense initiative. We won the Cold War because in so many areas of military technology, including avionics, as Israel demonstrated in the Beqaa Valley in 82. In so many areas, the United States was superior, but now we are inferior. So the first thing that we ought to do is make this Ukraine war go away, cut a deal, tell Zelensky, game's up. You keep this up, you won't have any more country to come back to. So let's find some, as distasteful as it is, to cut a deal with Putin, after all the nasty things he's done, we want to make this go away. We want to but de The weird thing really is, and I, I don't mean to interrupt you, but is that you have Turkey acting as a mediator. You have Israel, of all things, acting as a mediator. And you have the United States escalating its rhetoric all of the time. And you would have thought that the United States would be mediating, you know, that, that, that the United States would be playing some role to try to settle things down, and yet- No, we're, 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 we're the firemen who attach the fire hose to the gasoline truck. And what we should be doing is a massive program to reestablish American strategic superiority in a whole set of military technologies, ranging from hyperglide velocity uh, missiles and- I mean, let, I just want to go back, I, or I want to like, I want to sharpen that point for a second because Putin is clearly 
pointing, you know, he's poking his finger into the eye of the Americans this entire time. I mean, he he used hypersonic missiles, right, on one of in one of his bombing raids. I don't remember if it was Kiev or wherever it was. And it's so overkill, right? I mean, he doesn't need a hypersonic missile to attack Ukraine. That was saying, look what we have, America. Got any of these? And I understand the United Absolutely. States does have hypersonic missiles, but they're not, they're not, I don't know whether they're, whether they're operational, but it's not of the- no, the, we, we haven't had a successful test. And you mentioned also very importantly that uh, the two uh, Russian Su-24 uh, fighter bombers that uh, briefly violated Swedish airspace over the Baltic Sea, over the island of Gotland, and they were uh, <laughs> escorted away by uh, Swedish Griffin fighters who took pictures of them and they could see clearly on the underside of the Su-24s that they were carrying nuclear weapons. Now, from the people I've consulted, an incident like this never happened once in the entirety of the Cold War. An open display of aircraft armed with nuclear weapons violating neutral airspace. That is a signal from Russia that we're talking about nuclear war. So Lincoln and that was and barely Hitler, reported. I mean, the Daily Mail reported it. You reported it. I reported it uh, in on on Israeli television, but I didn't see anybody doing any follow up of the Daily Mail report. I mean, maybe I'm missing something, but it feels to me like nobody was talking about this. Nobody was talking about another Daily Mail story that said that the Russian high command has all decamped to nuclear bunkers in Siberia. I mean, these are big things and nobody seems to be reporting them. They're not getting any- right. the, the major media is living in a Disney cartoon where Putin's the big bad wolf and Zelensky is practical pig. Well, he has to be transgender if it's Disney, you know. Yeah, right, Bill, okay. They, <laughs> they haven't done that to Zelensky yet. But they will, because he's a hero and all heroes are transgender now at Disney's, you know, but that's a completely different question. Uh, uh, only half. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> oh, <you say. laughs> anyway, but I digress. So go back to the nuclear war thing, David, explain it to us. Nuclear war escalation is a very tricky thing because if you know the other side has it, it's like two guys in a fight that both have guns. And if one pulls a gun, the other has to pull a gun quickly. And if you think the other guy's pulling a gun, you better pull yours or he'll shoot you first. Right. So nuclear war exercises have always been the scariest and most difficult thing. Now, the one thing I will say is the Biden administration has been very careful not to put NATO forces within range of Russian weaponry. Uh, and we did veto the idea of moving these antiquated Polish MiG-29s to Rammstein Air Force Base in Germany. Right, but that was after America volunteered to force, you know, po po uh, Poland into the war by saying Poland is going to give them to the Ukrainians. The, the and the Poland said they all played hot potato with this because nobody wants to go near the tripwire, which. Really, it's like something out of Dr. Strangelove. Some future Stanley Kubrick could make a black comedy about this. <laughs> but it's, uh, it, it, it is quite serious. So 
the good news is that from the on the surface silly behavior of some of our leaders it's clear that they are aware there's a nuclear war risk and they're behaving accordingly so i don't want people to dive into a bomb shelter tomorrow or right now and you know expect the world to come to an end uh, but there is a risk that we're taking unnecessarily and i think the result of this is going to be that russia will succeed in its objectives of reducing Ukraine to uh, effectively a non-country depopulated pile of rubble that's no threat to it and no use to NATO, that there will be a shift away from the United States in large parts of the world which are of vital importance to us. For example, India, world's largest population. China has played this very cleverly uh, they haven't done anything to violate the U.S. sanctions, but they've sort of kept on the Russian side. So they've really had their cake and eaten it too. And they've also used the opportunity to try to reopen the discussion with India, which will be a very interesting thing to watch. So I see American influence diminishing. And perhaps the most important part of this is something which has really not been on the radar because, of course, strategists don't talk about money. Bankers are, are strategists and so forth. Most interesting part of this is a Goldman Sachs report that came out a couple of days ago, which said, you know, the dollar might be going the way of the British pound. People may stop using it as a reserve currency. Right after the war started, the International Monetary Fund, on its blog, said, when you seize hundreds of billions of dollars of central bank reserves in dollars, people are going to look sideways at the U.S. dollar as a reserve currency. They're going to want to put their money in other places. Now, the United States has a trillion dollar a year current account deficit. That's how much we have to borrow to pay for our excess of imports over exports. We have a $16 trillion negative net foreign asset position. That's how many assets we sold to foreigners to cover our past deficits. And we're still borrowing a trillion dollars a year. So the risk is that the world will not want to own our assets if we can go about seizing them if we don't like you. So look at the Saudis who are now uh, taking Chinese RMB in payment for oil. Why would they do that? Because they want to keep some of their reserves in RMB in case something happens, the United States decides to seize their assets. So it, this uh, is basically the end of the petrodollar, which has been the well, it's not, of it's American not, wealth. It's not the end. It's freeing at the edges. It's a risk. If we're the end of the petrodollar, you'd hear it through the window. Everybody would know about it because you know, currencies would move massive dollar to collapse. This is simply people hedging their bets against the dollar monetary system. Well, also, you know, with, with the Indians signing the oil deal with Russia, in rupees and rubles, right? I mean, it's uh, the same thing that they're de-dollarizing their transactions. If the Americans are going to take Russian banks off of SWIFT, then people who want to trade with Russia won't use dollars. Well, exactly. Uh, that's that's marginal at this point. It's only beginning to fray, but uh, it could accelerate a great deal. What does the United uh, States have to do in order to have this not happen? Well, 
The first thing is uh, we shouldn't be importing so much. We should be exporting. We should have more industry in the United States and less offshoring to China and other places. Uh, one of the great own goals we've had in monetary policy, shooting ourselves in the foot, has been to allow our industry to deteriorate and move overseas. Well, I mean, that was what Trump's whole thing was, was revitalizing American industry. You know, I mean, that, yes, that was he, what he was talking about the whole time. That was what he was trying yes, to do. It, it, the tariffs it well. was, uh, and, and he was absolutely right to talk about it. Uh, the problem is that um, the policies that he adopted weren't really very effective. So as I calculated, um, America's imports from China from between April not 2019, when Trump put on the tariffs against Chinese imports, to the present are up about 45%, which is an astonishing move. And the fact is, if you give people a lot of money to spend, as we did with the COVID stimulus, but our factories can't produce what they need, they'll buy it from overseas, even if it's at a higher price. So tariffs were not an effective way of addressing this. So Trump's good intentions, unfortunately, didn't translate into a good effective thing. I mean, so the United States is essentially doing exactly the opposite of what it has to do in order to maintain its position as the reserve currency of the globe, uh, both in, in oil, uh, oil and gas uh, uh, curtailing of supply and um, and in manufacturing and in outsourcing everything to China, um, and in and in really uh, undermining and subverting, uh, well, un, uh, fraying uh, deliberately the fabric of American society. Uh, oh, absolutely! And as you as you point out, one thing which Trump did do well was encourage people to drill for oil. Biden discouraged that, and we've had. We went from being an oil exporter to being an oil importer. That doesn't help either. So, so, so you think that this is all about, um, not all about, but that this is Putin looking at it from the perspective of a nuclear power and how do I minimize my vulnerability to nuclear assault and how do I maximize my power to carry out a nuclear attack on my enemies, that that's the primary idea that's in his head today. And that- that's, that's what he said explicitly. You can find online the transcript of his February 23rd, 10,000 word tirade. Uh, and in this case, I think he said exactly what he thought. And I, the I United States is, is talking about freedom when Zelensky is not um, paragon of, of liberal democracy. I mean, he he has his he he jailed his opposition uh, leader and he closed down all of these opposition newspapers and television uh, stations. I mean, he's not he's not Churchill. And um, no, no, not at all. The United States well may have been playing the kind of games that Putin expressed concern about. We may have pushed uh, 
to keep the Ukraine-NATO option open precisely in order to have the ability to station short-range missiles on Russia's border. I can't prove that. I don't have access to classified Pentagon material. I mean, I, I've seen other people like Victor Davis Hanson who has said it's not likely that he's correct about NATO. It's more likely that he that that Ukraine would have joined the European Union than that it would have joined NATO. Victor is a friend of mine. I respect him a lot. But you don't agree with him. You think that NATO actually was a viable option? Well, we left enough footprints to allow somebody like Putin to conclude that that's what we were up to. And if we weren't doing it, you know, we, we, got, uh, we got hanged for a lamb instead of sheep. So, you know, what, one of the weird things, and, and this is sort of to bring it closer to the Middle East and how Israel should be looking at this whole thing. One of the, one of the telling things about the lack of strategic wisdom behind what the United States is doing in that, and, and what I really view as a centrality, unfortunately, of virtue signaling in, in Biden's diatribes against Putin that are not tied to any clear policy or policy goal is that Putin has an emissary in Vienna, uh, Mikhaila Ulyanov, who is essentially running America's negotiations with Iran for the United States. Um, and uh, he said, look, you know, if you want us to uh, help you appease Iran, then you get, you're going to give us a carve out for all of your sanctions with everything that we're doing with Iran, um, which just opens up a window to, you know, in this, in this um, dungeons of sanctions, which means that essentially it, it, it neutralizes a lot of the effect, which you've shown already have been neutralized by the oil exports, which are another carve out. Um, and it really sort of speaks to the priority the priorities of the Biden administration that they claim that they're talking this angry game about Russia, but they're empowering Russia vis-a-vis uh, -vis Iran. Um, how do you look at that? Well, if there were ever a nest of war criminals anywhere in the post-World War II world, it's Iran today. This is the most brutal, vicious, murderous regime. Uh, and it's openly genocidal. I mean, it, it, it states yes. openly that it wants to annihilate Israel and kill everybody no. in Israel. Absolutely. It's openly genocidal. It practices mass murder against its own people and sponsors terror against other people. This right. is the most horrible regime on the face of the earth. North Korea is not as bad. And putting nuclear weapons in its hand is like putting you know, a machine gun in the hands of a you know, homicidal maniac just released from a lunatic asylum. It's crazy. So to give Iran carte blanche while going after Putin strikes me as the most extreme sort of lunatic hypocrisy. We, we need a new word, a sort of hypocrisy blend of chutzpah in the English language to capture it. Uh, why are they doing it? Well, because uh, the Brzezinski, Robert Gates establishments going back to the early 2000s and Council on Foreign Relations report in the security architecture of the Middle East has wanted to bring Iran into that security architecture and make it 
play nicely. They believed if you know, we were nice to the Iranians, they wouldn't fight us back. Brzezinski, who wrote that report, uh, believed that when he was in the Carter administration, which is why the Carter administration helped bring the uh, Islamic revolution into being in the first place. It's been a disastrously failed policy and a stupid one. And of course, it's uh, an existential threat to Israel. Israel is being thrown under the bus here. And that raises a terrible problem for Israel. Of course, Israel was one of the countries that has been neutral in the Ukraine-Russia issue. It has to be because uh, Russia's ability to interfere with Israel's security operations, particularly in the north, uh, against Hezbollah and in Syria, is, as you know better than I do, enormous. So Israel needs good relations with Russia as a matter of urgent national security. And as, as, and as, our, as our colleague and friend David Wormser has said on this program a number of times, you know, it's America's fault that Russia is in Syria. I mean, the Obama exactly. administration opened the door and Putin just walked through in 2015. And this also was part of a payback for the DOA <clears throat> uh, that the Americans saw Russia as a force that was going to be able to empower Iran. And that's what they wanted to do because the, the Hezbollah, Revolutionary Guard Assad forces fighting against uh, the Syrian opposition forces during the civil war, what, what whatever you want to call it in Syria, uh, they probably would have won at the end of the day, but they were incurring severe losses and Turkey was getting involved and beating them in places like Idlib. So, you know, you, you had a situation where they needed Russia and Russia came in and served as their air force. And that was how they were able to win the war and you know, carry out a genocide of, of the Sunnis in, in Syria and also depopulate Syria of Sunnis. Um, so this is, this is you know, something that Obama wanted to do because he was appeasing Iran. And so he didn't want to defeat Iran in Syria. Well, if and, you want to know what, how Russia wages war, look at Syria, look at Chechnya. Right. You, you strip the place of people, then it stops fighting. Funny how that happens. You know, I mean, when 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 we look at what's happened, I mean, there is a, another aspect to it that is sort of curious that I would assume that a lot of people at the IDF are looking at Russia's incompetence on the battlefield in Ukraine, where they're not taking territory, where you're right, they're probably grinding them down and, and, uh, and forcing, you know, millions more Ukrainians to leave the country by rendering it uninhabitable. Um, but they didn't do very well uh, in, in, the, in the initial weeks of the war, they got bogged oh. down, they have low morale among their forces. Um, the, the army itself seems to be extremely corrupt. Um, and disloyal uh, to its chain of command. Uh, I, I really, I really, I really don't know, and I don't trust reports in the Western media. Um, if but let me just of... let me just finish this question. I mean, yes. so I mean, on the one hand, you look at the Russians and you say, well, they don't. They seem to be underperforming. They don't seem to be as powerful a military force as they claim to be. And on the other hand, from an Israeli perspective, it's not really the Russian regular forces that Israel is facing in 
Syria. It's facing the Russian Air Force. It's facing the Russian Navy. It's facing the S-400 batteries. So that it, it, the, the battle readiness of the ground forces in the Russian military actually shouldn't be that much of a concern for Israel because Russian ground forces aren't really involved in Syria. They're serving as the air force of Hezbollah in Iran. Well, remember that uh, every officer at the Ukrainian army probably used to be an officer of the Russian army. Okay. Used to be the same army. They've got similar training, similar doctrine, similar equipment. So I don't think it's, uh, I mean, given the size of the Ukrainian army and the relatively small expeditionary force that Putin sent in, uh, it's not really surprising that uh, in many cases they fought to a draw. I don't know why you say that it's a small expeditionary force. I mean, I've seen reports that they're bringing in the majority of their of their war well, war capable it, units into. Well, they I mean, they had a hundred what one hundred twenty one hundred fifty thousand people on the border. Uh, the standard doctrine of, of of the Russian army would be that to fight an army of a hundred thousand, which is the Ukrainian army. You uh, in an invasion, you need a three to one superiority. So they would have had three. Normal would have been three hundred thousand because the defender always has an advantage. But the assumption has always on the Western press is that Putin wanted a blitzkrieg. He wanted a quick victory. Um, I don't think that's true necessarily. Um, he would have, uh, as a number of tank commanders have pointed out to me, if you wanted a blitzkrieg, you would have sent a column of tanks straight to Lviv and cut the country in half, the way von Manstein did with the sickle cut in Normandy coming in through the Ardennes in 1940. Uh, instead, they, uh, they surrounded, as best they could, Ukrainian army units and pounded them to pieces. This is more an envelopment and, and destruction campaign, and that's a war of attrition. So again, I go back to the element of time. Uh, I'm not sure how well the Russian army performed. My guess is that they probably performed pretty poorly. Every time the Russian army has started a war or gotten into a war, its initial performance has been poor. That was true in 1905, in 1914, 1941, and so forth. Um, but I think uh, Russia is accomplishing its objectives in Ukraine exactly as it did in Syria. And the objective is no more Ukraine, or at least no more of those parts of Ukraine, which Putin thinks might eventually be a threat. So I guess this is just what you're saying is that Putin in Ukraine is playing for keeps, that he he's decided he's not willing to have this Ukraine a thorn in his side at all. Again, yes, and, the same and, way he played for keeps in Chechnya. Chechnya has displaced half the population, ceased to function. It was a small place, 2.3 million people, but it ceased to function as a country. What's left are his stooges. Uh, you have, of course, a Chechnyan uh, battalion running around uh, Ukraine, probably doing all kinds of terrible things. Um, yes, he is playing for keeps. He's playing. Russian style, or if you will, Richelieu style. This is 30 years war style war fighting. Do, do you think that this is, uh, I mean, do you think that this is, uh, when you look at this, if, if 
in November, the Republicans take control of both houses of Congress. I mean, the Republicans don't seem to really, many of the Republicans at any rate, don't seem to really understand uh, that the United States needs to figure out a way to end this war quickly. I mean, you have you have a lot of Russians who are trying yeah. to outdo Democrats and their hawkishness and desire to send forces to Ukraine or put up a no-fly zone, which would enter the United States into the into the into the war as a combatant against Russia. Um, so there doesn't seem to be that much thinking in the United States about what this what this actually means about the balance of forces between the United well, States the, and Russia. There, I think the Republican Party at this point is as confused a rabble as could ever be imagined in American politics. Uh, it has no center at this point. There is an element of the Republican Party, mainly Republicans, uh, mainly on the right of the party, uh, which wants de-escalation. Um, a statement was just published a few days ago, initiated by uh, Sora Bakhmari, former editorial page editor at the New York Post, now the editor of something called Compact magazine. Uh, I signed it, Michael Anton of Claremont, former senior Trump official signed it, large number of conservative intellectuals did so. Also some left-wingers like Glenn Greenwald. Um, so there certainly is a movement inside the Republican party which wants to de-escalate. Uh, now, I'm a hawk. I want to de-escalate this because this is the wrong fight at the wrong time when we can't win. I want to go back and spend a trillion dollars on hypervelocity glide vehicles, drone swarms, whatever technology we need to reestablish America's technological superiority. I want us, I believe in peace through strength. If you want a peace, you prepare for war. If you want war, you provoke from weakness. And that's what these idiots in the Biden administration are doing. And they don't even understand what they're doing. I, I really don't think that a president who can say, I, I want to overthrow Putin, and then his National Security Council tries to back off of this 30 seconds later, I don't think that that's an, an administration that you can take seriously. And, and it makes India's decision to stand with Russia, uh, which is a real blow to the United States, uh, seem very rational. I saw that you know Israeli leaders are trying to beat a path to Modi's door now. Um, and uh, I think hopefully they will learn from him because I think that he is saying, you know, look, we have to play uh, everybody. I mean, Orban as well, uh, because we have to protect ourselves. And the United States is not behaving rationally in this situation, and we have to figure out how to move forward. I mean, I think that if we were going to, you know, sort of try to s summarize and and draw basic lessons from from what's happening now in Ukraine, and we are seeing these um, atrocities that the Russians apparently are carrying out against the Ukrainians. And uh, I mean, we should be, that the best way to put a stop to this is to say, look, Zelensky, you know, you, you are not the man, you know, you, if you want to protect Ukraine, then you have to figure out a way to, to stay to this back. And one of the things that you wrote that I found so alarming is probably the wrong word, but it made my stomach turn was when you were talking about Richelieu's 
uh, strategic use of negotiations, that the negotiations, the ceasefire negotiations that he was holding were a bluff and it was a way to buy time to continue grinding down and depopulating Pomerania um, and, and, and forcing them into such utter destitution and starvation that, that you get a Hansel and Gretel scenario of eating uh, one another of cannibalism. And, um, and, and here we've had from the outset these negotiations and we don't know what they're negotiating um, we don't know what what a ceasefire would look like, but you know the United States is escalating instead of trying to de-escalate. And um, you know if if Russia is playing a long game here, then this is going to be, and and Zelensky doesn't understand that, or he's being told other things by the Americans. Um, then the result is going to be horrors for Ukraine and diminishing American influence. And that's not good for us. And I, I'm aghast at this as an American patriot. As a friend of Israel, it's not good for Israel. <laughs> well, it's not good for Israel, but I mean, the Biden administration, unfortunately, wasn't good for Israel before Russia invaded Ukraine. And uh, it's not good for Israel with, 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 the, with, Iran, with Iran. It's not good for Israel with the Palestinians. It's not good with Israel with what they're doing to American society, you know. Uh, um, so I think it's not good for the United States. It's not good for the allies that love the United States for what it is. And the the Arabs you see are are trying to find other options. They're they're going to the Chinese. They're going to the Russians. Um, yes. Well, a, a, as you know, the United Arab Emirates turned down the F thirty five, and it said bought. Uh, the Rafale from the French, and they also refused American demands to kick Huawei out of its telecommunications technology. The most important thing, of course, as we mentioned before, is the Saudis uh, offering to accept RMB in payment for oil, which is an enormous boost to Chinese prestige as well as power, because having your currency accepted in return for real stuff like oil, that's power. So America's losing power, China's gaining it, and it's gaining it in areas which are close to Israel. That's a difficult situation to be in, and I hope that the divine providence continues to help Israel and Israeli ingenuity continues to find solutions to difficult problems. I'm into that. I, I, I'm into that. Maybe we should just end it here, um, but I think it's very clear that actions have consequences, and when you have the world superpower, the United States, replacing strategic thought and the pursuit of America's national interest with virtue signaling and trying to, you know, uh, curry favor with the, with the, with the Bernie Sanders uh, grassroots of the Democrat Party in foreign policy, um, you're, you're going to see a lot of things like what we're seeing with Biden. I mean, Putin seems to be... Uh, every indication that he is in fact a war criminal, but he's also somebody that the United States is not in a position to defeat. I will keep an open mind on the Bucha massacre until I see the evidence, uh, but that simply is a matter of procedure. Putin's a nasty guy, whatever he is. I guess one last question I have to ask you, because you know, I mean, I wouldn't say that there's been an idealization of Putin in Israel. 
that's not what it is. It's that there is a sense that you can make a deal with him, you know, that Netanyahu was able to make a deal with him uh, in, in Syria uh, to enable Israel operational independence uh, in attacking Iranian targets that endanger Israel and endanger in, in weapon shipments and Hezbollah targets that endanger Israel specifically. Um, and there have been, been uh, ups and downs, but uh, Putin has basically hewn to this uh, agreement. And so there's a sense here that uh, um, there was a sense that, you know, he was not anti-Israel, that he was a guy you could do business with. Um, and, you know, we, I look at what he's doing in Ukraine and it makes me wonder um, what lays behind those promises and um, how oh. long can we trust him uh, and what would change his mind to make him into a major threat, an active threat to Israel? Now he's a hypothetical threat to Israel. He's there, but he's, you know, he's, he's um, I, I wouldn't say necessarily he's an unloaded gun, but he's not pointing it at us. Well, this will be disputed by historians until the end of time, but Putin's view and he stated this on many occasions, is that Russia was promised that there would be no eastward expansion of NATO or return for Russia in 1990, removing its troops from Eastern Europe. So Putin believes he was betrayed and lied to. Uh, the German press published uh, protocols of the negotiations from 1990, which appear to substantiate Putin's view. Uh, why the, the Russians tend to keep their bargains unless they have an extremely good reason for not doing so. Uh, that's historically been the case. It's one reason the Indians trust them because the, the Russians have never gone back at a bargain with the Indians. They've always done what they said they were gonna do. What would cause Putin to turn on Israel? I mean, if Israel's not provoking Russia by supporting the American position, staying neutral, uh, what self-interest of Russia would cause Russia to want to hurt Israel? Uh, they don't like the Iranians. They fought wars with them. There's still disputed territories between Russia and Iran. They don't like the idea of Iran having nuclear weapons. Why should they? they but I mean, they built the Boucher nuclear reactor. I mean, a lot of the Iranian nuclear program is Russian technology. It's Russian assistance. So, I mean, maybe you're right, maybe you're wrong. Maybe they don't yeah, think okay. that I, I, an Iran with nuclear well, weapons the, is a threat to them. The, the, the danger has always been that Russia would want to build up Iran as a threat to the United States and Israel would be collateral damage. That's, that, that's always been a risk. And I wrote a piece in 2008 entitled, Americans Play Monopoly, Russians Play Chess in which I argued that we should cut a deal with Russia over Ukraine's neutrality in order to get Russia's cooperation in controlling Iran. Right. Well, you know, that I think was probably the deal that Trump was looking for with Mike Flynn when they came into office in 2017. And that was scuttled immediately by Obama's people in the administration who undermined uh, Flynn. And really, I mean, I, I just can't get over the centrality 
of the of the of the realignment towards Iran and away from Israel and away from Saudi Arabia in the foreign policy thinking of the Obama Biden team. I mean, it is absolutely the central concern that they voice that they're acting towards that they're willing to give up everything for. And Ukraine kind of caught them by surprise and they weren't expecting there to be actual, you know, consequences to their baiting of Russia uh, throughout the Trump presidency. And um, like you were saying, I mean, to the eastward expansion of NATO. So I think that this took them by surprise, but they remain fixated on realigning the United States away from Israel and Saudi Arabia and towards Iran. Well, it's tough when you're an ally of a great power that's led by idiots. Indeed, it's tough uh, in, in, to be a great power when you don't have um, you don't have the opposite side speaking coherently about prudence and and what needs to be done in order to ratchet up uh, America's defenses and its capabilities and its ability to remain the great power that it's been for the past century and a half. So, you know, um, on that happy note. Uh, Got anything optimistic to say? Want to tell us a joke? <laughs> say something, something. Oh, so that people I'll, don't I'll, think I'll, podcasts and say. I'll, I'll tell you the Russian national joke about two okay. mountain climbers, Sergei and Ivan. They're climbing a mountain. Okay. Sergei says, Ivan, I've fallen. Ivan says, Sergei, are you hurt? No, Ivan, I'm not hurt. Uh, anything broken? Oh, no, nothing's broken, Ivan. Well, Sergei, can you please get up and you know climb back up so we can continue climbing the mountain. Ivan, I cannot climb back and I cannot climb back up. I'm very sorry. But if you're not hurt, says Ivan to Sergei, why can't you climb back up? Sergei says, because Ivan, I'm still falling. <laughs> yeah, that's a good one. That's a good one. That's a good one. <laughs> you got to give it to Marilyn, the they have a It good is an honor and privilege to spend time with the genial, informed, witty, and beautiful Carolyn Glick. So thank Ooh. you so much for the invitation. Oh, well, thank you so much for coming on, David. And I have to tell you, uh, every time that I read your articles, I learn. And every time that I have you on, I hope that my audience also learns because um, one of the things that David brings to bear, I'll just end it here, except to say that you have to subscribe to our channels if you haven't done it yet. Remember that. Remember to subscribe all your kids and all your parents and all your grandparents and nieces, nephews, aunts, uncles, friends, whatever, um, is that when you have a holistic understanding of history and technology and economics, you can see things in current events that certainly aren't covered in the news and in the and in the, the, the sort of not even skin deep understanding that most people bring to bear in their analyses. And by the way, if we're talking about something completely different, we might as well just do it. I think that David, you and your and your analytical capabilities, your analytical powers, and what you bring to bear is is a true explanation 
uh, exposition of the importance of the humanities and of the social sciences and uh, to, to our ability to understand the world that we live in. And they're being degraded here in Israel. Uh, they want to eliminate them from the from the from the school system in in high schools in Israel as as uh, required subjects, um, and I think that uh, you're you're proof that uh, country needs to know history. Our people need to know history. Our people need to understand the world that we operate in. Because if we don't, and everything is just a startup nation, then we lose our ability to understand it. So thank you very much for, oh, for, you, for joining me. And, uh, and all of you, thank you for watching and we'll see you again next week. Take care. Thank you.